Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 19, Seattle Fault. Thanks for listening. Well, I, um, I've really been enjoying doing these podcasts, and uh, before we start talking about the Seattle Fault here in the Pacific Northwest, a fault that perhaps you know nothing about. Maybe you've never heard of something called the Seattle Fault. That's coming in a bit, but let me just say a quick note. Uh, I was in my office this morning, and I had a student come in, and we talked about classes to take next quarter, et cetera. And before she was leaving, she said, uh, hey, I heard you're doing a podcast. Is that true? And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of fun. She said, oh, I, I had no idea. Nobody knew you were doing this. And don't you publicize it and that sort of thing? I'm like, well, not really. Just kind of doing it and seeing who finds it, and and uh, she said, "Oh, okay. Well, I'll 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 find it." And I and she said, "Well, how's it going? How many episodes have you done?" I said, "Well, I don't know. We're approaching 20. I, she's like, 20? Really? Uh, how often do you publish them?" I said, "Well, about once a week, if I remember to. About once a week, I publish one." And uh, she says, well, how does this compare to the other stuff you've been doing? Like you do the, the stuff on television and the, the lectures uh, downtown. And I say, well, it's very different. <laughs> it's different because you, you sit in a room by yourself and you talk into a microphone, as I'm doing right now. And there's not a whole lot of feedback. And she says, oh, well, okay, well, maybe you'll get some feedback. I'm like, well, I'm not really in it for the feedback, but, yeah, it, you know, I, I guess occasionally I see somebody tweet something or whatever, or maybe I visit somebody in person and they say I've been listening. But she said she basically had her backpack on now. She said, well, you know, you can go to the Apple Store and, and uh, see your reviews for the podcast. And I'm like, oh, really? I didn't know that. So we got on the Apple Store real quick, and she showed me how to click and find the rate and review area. And I don't know, there was maybe a dozen or maybe two dozen comments, and they were all very nice, and the, the five stars and all that sort of thing. So, so if, you, if you took the time to, to rate and review the podcast, uh, thank you for doing that. It was nice to read those comments. I'm certainly not going there every day to, to see if anybody else has left a review since I didn't even know I could find that information. But, uh, you know, I, ha I do listen to other podcasts, and some of them kind of regularly say, well, make sure to rate and review. Um, you know, I'll do this regardless if there's ratings or reviews, but uh, it was nice to read those comments. That's my point. And um, I'm glad that you have found this podcast and, and feel like uh, you're getting something out of it. Uh, enough of that. Onward, the Seattle Fault. Well, I'm probably going to repeat myself just a bit from last episode. We were talking about the San Andreas Fault, and I, I, full disclosure, I have not listened to that episode, and I recorded it a couple weeks ago, so I forget the details of what I said. I think the only thing I remember is I kind of screwed up the Richter scale discussion, but whatever. Uh, you can Google Richter scale, can't you? Um, so possibly this is a repeat, but what I want to say is this. I've been teaching a Geology of Washington class at the 100 level for 30 years. I've been here in Washington 30 years. And I had one earthquake lecture back then, and it was on the San Andreas Fault in California. And there were no lectures on earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest because essentially 
in uh, 1989, there was no discussion. There was no tremendous amount of uh, evidence for seismic worry in the Pacific Northwest. And we now realize that the biggest and bad, uh, baddest, I was going to say something else there, um, the most dominant and scary earthquakes possible on planet Earth have happened here in the Pacific Northwest. And I use that message that in my teaching career, we've gone from basically no knowledge to an absolute uh, mind-numbing knowledge about seismic risk here in the Pacific Northwest. That's all been happening in the last 30 years. And so I want to celebrate the science that's been done. I also want to um, embrace the fact that we will continue to gain large amounts of knowledge with the new generation of geologists, perhaps that gal in my office, uh, who will be adding to what we know and what we don't know. Actually, if somebody's adding to what we don't know, let's fire them on the spot. That was a dumb thing to say. But you get the point. So the Seattle Fault is just part of our worry here in the Pacific Northwest, information that we did not have 30 years ago. So let's cut to the chase. If I started to feel this recording studio um, vibrating and I had the uh, fluorescent lights above me start to shake and I had uh, the power flickering on and off and the podcast would be uh, halted, of course, what a tragedy that would be. <laughs> I would not know which earthquake was doing the shaking in the Pacific Northwest. And what I mean by that is there is an unholy trinity of earthquake potential here in the Pacific Northwest. An unholy trinity. I borrowed that phrase from a guy named Brian Atwater who we'll talk a lot about in next week's podcast. Trinity means three. Let's not get into the religious side of it. And there are three distinctly different ways that we have discovered that earthquakes are generated here in the Pacific Northwest. Let's give it to you. Who's in the unholy trinity? These three things. Deep slab quakes, shallow crust quakes, and ocean trench quakes. Got it? Those are the three. Deep slab, shallow crust, ocean trench. And with this episode, we're going to tackle the first two, the deep slab and the shallow crust. We're going to save the ocean trench stuff for next podcast. Got it? All right. Well, we knew very little about any of these things 30 years ago. I've already made that message about four times, made that point about four times. So let's get into these one by one. The most recent deep slab quake that we experienced here in Washington was the last day of February 2001. Many of us remember that Nisqually earthquake. We remember the ground uh, rolling, shaking, uh, here in Ellensburg, Washington. But the Nisqually earthquake was a deep slab quake. And so let's set this up. Can you visualize, please, this plate tectonic cross-section? of Washington. I'm going to focus mostly on Washington, even though I'm really talking about the Pacific Northwest. It's easier for me just to talk about Washington, okay? So cross-section of Washington, okay, we got Washington laying on its back. We've got the west coast of Washington. We could pick some towns like Ocean Shores, Washington, 
uh, Westport or uh, uh, Washington, <laughs> Long Beach, Washington, Forks. Okay, so that's on the west coast of our little cross section, our little side view of Washington laying on its back, and on the on the right side is of course like Spokane over on the other side. Okay, good. So that's the North American plate that's moving essentially west in our sketch from right to left. We do have an ocean plate offshore. It's not the Pacific plate, however. The Pacific plate moves northwest, as we discussed last episode with the San Andreas Fault. Instead, we have a relatively small piece of ocean crust in the Pacific Ocean, but not the Pacific plate. It's called the Juan de Fuca plate. And the Juan de Fuca plate is moving east, essentially, so left to right in your sketch, and about 55 miles offshore of Ocean Shores, Washington, there's a big drop-off on the ocean floor. That's an oceanic trench. And that's where the Juan de Fuca plate begins to dive into the earth and dive beneath the North American plate. There's an ocean plate that's diving beneath Washington. Okay, well, that was known. That was discovered, you know, 50, 60 years ago, back to our plate tectonic episodes of this podcast. But 30 years ago, again, when I started to teach here, the company line was, hey, man, the Juan de Fuca plate is gliding aseismically beneath North America here in Washington, meaning that uh, for some reason that boundary between the subducting ocean plate and the overriding continental North American plate is not producing earthquakes. And we know certainly that in California, the transform plate boundary, the San Andreas Fault, is creating all sorts of earthquake problems. And we were certainly aware that other places in the world where we had plate boundary activity, there were earthquakes. But again, the message was, hey, we're, we're safe, quote unquote, here in Washington. We really don't have to worry about earthquakes, even though we have an active subduction zone, meaning the ocean plate is diving beneath Washington. Okay, well, that was the general message. However, these deep slab quakes kept happening every few decades. So I mentioned the most recent example. It's about magnitude 7 on the Richter scale. A uh, couple of fatalities February 28, 2001, uh, mainly from masonry crumbling in mostly uh, Pioneer Square in downtown Seattle. This is not the Seattle Fault, by the way, yet. We're talking about the Nisqually earthquake uh, being produced in deep levels of the ocean crust. So maybe that's the best way to say this. So regularly, <coughs> meaning every few centuries, damn it, wrong, meaning every few decades, there are earthquakes coming from deep within the Juan de Fuca plate. That's the first major message of today. What's the first of our three-headed monster? The first of our seismic worries? These regular earthquakes that, that are coming from deep within the subducting plate. Within the plate, not even at the plate boundary. Like there's, like there's, there's breakage, there's... there's uh, um, uh, well, I can go ahead and say it. There's, there's, there's what appear to be normal faults within the subducting Juan de Fuca plate that are accumulating stress, producing strain, and eventually breaking. And we really don't understand what's going on. It's so far down there, first of all. These are earthquakes being generated deeper than 20 kilometers depth. 
very difficult to get good information for what's happening. What are the mechanics inside of these deep slab quakes? <clears throat> but they keep happening. 2001, Nisqually. 1965, Seattle. 1949, Seattle. And plenty before that. So these deep slab events happen regularly enough that people remember them. You know, you'll skip a generation maybe in there. But, uh, you know, I, I give a talk and talk about 1965, and the old-timers in the room have stories. Even 1949, Seattle, they've got stories. They remember it. And these are not end-of-the-world earthquakes, but they are significant enough to be a big news story. <clears throat> okay. What is going on with these deep slab quakes? And it's not just us. We now realize that all places where we have ocean plates subducting beneath continental plates, these deep slab events keep happening. Very poorly understood. Uh, if you're looking to take notes on major things that will be developed with new data in the next generation or two, that's one of them. What is going on? Why are those deep slabs continuing to happen? And occasionally they have enough energy uh, to create rather significant amounts of harm to human populations. So this is not one of those esoteric academic uh, questions. This is, this is impacting people's lives. And uh, we need to make sure we understand what's going on. We don't right now. And so I chose to title this episode The Seattle Fault because I have much more to say about number two of the unholy trinity than I do that number one. That's pretty much the end of what I have to say about deep slab quakes because we're so clueless about what's going on. So you with me? We're leaving number one of our three earthquake problems, our unholy trinity, our three-headed monster, whatever you want. And for the rest of this little episode, we're going to focus on number two, shallow crustal earthquakes. Okay. Well, first off, do we have a case study for that? Do we have a shallow crustal earthquake that we can study uh, to demonstrate uh, the power of these? Yes, we do. Okay, what fault is it? What earthquake is it? It's an earthquake that happened at shallow levels in the crust, the year 900 A.D. <laughs> so we're going back a ways. Uh, Grandpa and Grandma don't remember this one. 900 A.D. What happened? Well, there was an earthquake in the upper 20 kilometers of the crust. So these shallow crustal quakes are, are named shallow for a reason. The hypocenters, or the focus of these shallow crustal earthquakes, are typically within the upper 20 kilometers of the crust, and they are away, they are away from the plate boundary. They're not out there at the ocean. These are hypocenters that are happening uh, hundreds of miles away from the ocean trench, within the North American plate, shallow levels within Washington. And this event, 900 A.D., happened on, you guessed it, the Seattle Fault. Now, the Seattle Fault has not produced an earthquake since then. So it's been more than a thousand years since the last earthquake on the Seattle Fault. And before we get into the nitty-gritty, let's make that statement. If you're on a particular fault in shallow levels of Washington, 
our current understanding is poor, but we can say a statement like this. There are magnitude 7 earthquakes on those shallow crustal faults on the order of every 10 to 20,000 years. <laughs> and that's almost meaningless to say that. Almost meaningless. It's been a thousand years since the last Seattle Fault earthquake, our case study for today. Maybe that means there's nine or even 15,000 years to go before the next Seattle Fault earthquake. But the reason we're so clueless about this is we don't have enough dates. We don't have enough dates on prehistoric earthquakes. It's possible to do this. We do have technology now and logic and skill and reason and strong backs and backhoes. Uh, to really study these faults. But to be honest, we're just in the phase of identifying where these shallow crustal faults are located. And again, 30 years ago, we didn't even know the Seattle Fault existed. In fact, my first year of, of living in Ellensburg, uh, I was the new guy. I didn't know anything about Washington. I'd never lived here before. And I was getting phone calls. That's how long ago this was. This is before email and internet. I'd get phone calls. And I'd say, oh, Nick Zentner, Geology Department, Central Washington University, can I help you? And 30 years ago, there were some maps that showed up in newspapers. Do you remember those newspapers? And the map was a map of the Seattle area with a huge crack running right down the middle of the map. It's an east-west crack. I'll describe it to you. The Seattle Fault runs from Bainbridge Island through Discovery Bay, excuse me, through Elliott, through Elliott Bay, right through downtown Seattle, basically underneath the old kingdom where the Mariners used to play. Underneath Safeco Field, whoops, not called that anymore either. I don't know what the hell it's called now. It's ridiculous corporate whatever. I can't even say the Seahawks Stadium because the name changes so much. All right, that's a digression, not going there. The point is a newly discovered earthquake fault going right underneath the biggest city in the Pacific Northwest and continuing to the east right underneath I-90. Seattle. Mercer Island, Bellevue, even out to Issaquah. This was big news. Now, I know I'm kind of all over the place on this, uh, on this episode, but I'm hoping uh, to make up for that I have extra enthusiasm because this is exciting. It's exciting that we, you know, in the last 30 years have been mapping Faults, finding faults. I mean, there was just one, and now there's five, and now there's 12, and now there's 23. I mean, with each passing year. And technologies have come along to help us find these faults, <coughs> no pun intended, to find these faults, uh, especially with a, a new technique called LIDAR, which many of you know about, where you can uh, magically remove all the overburden, magically remove all the trees, and get some imagery to really find these structures. Here's my biggest point. We know a little bit more about shallow crustal earthquakes than we do deep slab quakes, but we still can't answer the most basic questions like, 
How many earthquakes have happened on the Seattle Fault in the last 50,000 years? How many earthquakes have happened on the Menashtash Ridge Fault in the last 50,000 years? How many earthquakes have happened on the Saddle Mountains Fault in the last 50,000 years? Or the Tacoma Fault? Or the South Whidbey Island Fault? Are you starting to get the picture? It's frustrating and exciting at the same time. The excitement is finding these structures and realizing our seismic activity is much more active than we previously thought. That's exciting scientifically. It's frustrating because now that people are realizing that we have these shallow earthquakes regularly in the Pacific Northwest, of course they want to know their chances. Am I going to have one of these shallow crustal events in, the, in my lifetime? I've heard there's a fault in my backyard. What are the odds this thing's going to go in the next 100 years or 50 years? We have no way of answering that question. And the real frustration comes from if we magically had millions and millions of dollars or hundreds and hundreds of geologists to go out and deploy them to every one of these known faults and to dig into the ground and find layers that we can get dates on and figure out a detailed earthquake history of the last 50,000 years for each of these faults, we would have the answers. It's possible to get those answers. But we're not there. We're not even close. So, let's focus back on the Seattle Fault. Now that we realize the Seattle Fault is not by itself. The Seattle Fault is part of dozens and dozens of, quote-unquote, newly discovered faults. Of course, the faults have always been there. We've just found them in the last generation or so. Again, the excitement is, boy, think of how much more we will know in 20 years. I'm hoping to teach another 20 years. I'm 56 years old. I, I, I really enjoy it. So I'm hoping that I have more meat and potatoes to deliver to the masses uh, about this shallow crustal earthquake story. Okay, the re I promise, the rest of this will be uh, just focusing on the Seattle Fault. <coughs> Swig of water. Hang on. La, 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 la. <coughs> Thank you. All righty. Uh, the Seattle Fault is a reverse fault. Reverse fault, what does that mean? Well, we've talked about this. Let me remind you. Reverse faults are cracks in the crust that produce earthquakes. And there's a block of rock that's above that angled fault called the hanging wall. And there's a block of crust that's below that angled fault that goes into the ground. That's called the foot wall. And each time we make an earthquake on a reverse fault, we have the hanging wall go up with respect to the foot wall. Remember that from our crustal deformation lecture, our folds and faults lecture? Now, here's a really impressive thing. 30 years ago, they not only found the Seattle Fault, but they were able to measure how much the land lifted on the hanging wall side of the fault during that earthquake, 900 A.D., What's your guess for how much the land south of the Seattle Fault lifted at the snap of a finger during that earthquake? What's that? What is that you say? Huh? 
Well, maybe you're right. But if you're not right, here's the answer. 21 feet. 21 feet of land lifting during one earthquake. And there's a bunch of detailed information to come up with that number of 21 feet. Again, the Seattle Fault is an east-west trending fault. And I'm now telling you for the first time that the Seattle Fault dips to the south. It's not a crack that goes straight down. It angles to the south. Therefore, the hanging wall of the Seattle Fault is on the south side of the fault. And I'm, therefore, I'm saying that everything south of I-90, everything south of West Seattle and Alki Point, lifted 21 feet compared to the north side of the fault. You can imagine the effects of that, can't you? This earthquake, 900 AD, we're estimating the magnitude of 7.4 on the Richter scale. Difficult to be sure of that. But the kinds of evidence that we have to prove that there was that much movement in such a short amount of time are things called wave-cut platforms. So I mentioned Bainbridge Island, which is if you take the ferry west out of downtown Seattle, you cross some water, Elliott Bay, and then you get over to an island called Bainbridge Island. And on the southern part of Bainbridge Island is a place called Discovery Point. Is that right? No, it's not. Hang on, hang on. Uh, Restoration Point, sorry. The southern part of Bainbridge Island is called Restoration Point. And it's a famous place for us now. It's private land, I'm afraid, but we managed to get access in there from some of the landowners and filmed a program. The thing to film is this amazing bench of bedrock that shows that the land suddenly jumped up 21 feet. Basically, that bench of bedrock was in Puget Sound water, and then suddenly, 900 A.D., it wasn't in the water. It lifted 21 feet, just came out of the water. And we've got waves, we've got sediments to, uh, to help us put that story together. We've got different levels of wave-cut platforms, uh, not just at Restoration Point, but at, at Alki Point across the way. In other words, a lot of details to map and to measure to show that abrupt land lifting on the hanging wall side of the Seattle Fault, the south side of the Seattle Fault. Now you're like, well, where does that date come from, 900 A.D.? It doesn't come from the actual hanging wall lifting. If you move the crust 21 feet up on the floor of Puget Sound, which is the case, the Seattle Fault goes through Puget Sound, you're going to create a tsunami. Now, it's the first time we've mentioned the word tsunami in this, epi- this, this podcast series. Uh, 25 years ago, it was very difficult to teach what a tsunami was because nobody knew what it was. The students had no idea. There, there wasn't footage of Japan or, or Sumatra that we've had in the last uh, 20 years. So tsunamis are not tidal waves. Tsunamis are... Waves of water generated by earthquakes. Earthquake generated sloshes of water in a body of water, most commonly in a big ocean basin. But in this case, a much shallower uh, Puget Sound had a tsunami. 
generated by the 21 feet of sudden lifting of the south side of the Seattle Fault. Or you can think of it the opposite way. There was a tsunami in Puget Sound, 900 AD, by the north side of the Seattle Fault dropping. Can you imagine the floor of Puget Sound dropping by 21 feet at the snap of a finger? That's going to displace a bunch of water. That's going to generate a tsunami, a slosh of water heading to the north. And geologists started, when they, when they realized the significance and the amount of offset on the Seattle Fault, sedimentary geologists said, well, look, we're going to go north from this newly discovered Seattle Fault. We're going to dig in the mud, and we're going to try to find evidence of a tsunami. There must have been a tsunami within Puget Sound, and there was. Discovery Point which I mistakenly said a few minutes ago, is north of Seattle, near Ballard Locks, south tip of Whidbey Island, lots of kind of muddy shorelines along both east and west coasts of Puget Sound, north of Seattle, even up in Everett. And if you dig in that mud, I mean, it's sloppy, uh, messy, Mud. <laughs> I was going to say something else there, too. I'm editing myself as I go. That's unusual. But occasionally you can find tsunami deposits in the mud. And that typically is a sheet of sand. We'll talk more about tsunami deposits next episode. But for the most part, when you have a tsunami, you're bringing a bunch of high-energy water into an area that's usually low-energy water. That's like a tidal mud flat. So suddenly this big energetic batch of water comes in. And with that energetic water comes sand. And so the, the permanent record of a tsunami, of course the water is going to eventually kind of uh, dissipate, uh, but the permanent record is a layer of sand. And then you can date using organic material and other uh, way, uh, uh, pieces of wood or twigs that were washed in with, with the tsunami. Um, you can get a date for the actual tsunami. And that's what's been done. That's where we get the 900 AD. It's not by trenching on the Seattle Fault. It's not by doing anything with the fault itself. We have that one precious date from the Seattle Fault from a tsunami deposit north of the Seattle Fault along the shores of Puget Sound. That's a crazy amount of precision for an event more than a thousand years ago, but that's the work of these geologists. We'll talk about one of him, one of them in particular next next time. To finish this episode on the Seattle Fault, uh, let me comment briefly on why we know now <laughs> why are these shallow crustal earthquakes happening? What kind of fault was it for the Seattle Fault? Reverse. In fact, all the shallow crustal earthquakes are happening on reverse faults. All the dozens and dozens of newly discovered faults in the shallow levels of Washington's crust, they're reverse faults. And in general, they agree with each other. They all trend about northwest to southeast. Some are perfectly east and west like the Seattle Fault. But basically, imagine the state of Washington and throw in a bunch of black lines, line segments, uh, through the middle of Washington going from kind of um, Strait of Juan de Fuca up by Port Angeles, uh, make a few more black line segments running through Seattle, northwest, southeast, can you please, uh, continue through the Cascades. Yeah, 
reverse vaults through the Cascade Mountains. Get them rolling through Ellensburg, Yakima, Othello, and on down to the um, southeastern part of the state. Okay? That's Earthquake Alley as far as shallow crustal earthquakes are concerned. And so my last point with this episode is, why are we getting all those reverse faults uh, through that stretch of Washington, from Port Angeles down to Lewiston, Idaho? The answer is, if they're all reverse faults, that means the crust is being compressed. And with that sketch that you just drew, northwest to southeast of all those line segments, that must mean that the crustal compression is coming from the northeast and the southwest. You following me? The reverse faults, shallow crust, trend northwest-southeast, so the compressional stresses have to come perpendicular to that from the northeast and from the southwest. That's been the big question for a long time. What's going on? That's a tectonic story. Why are we squeezing the crust in Washington from the northeast and the southwest. The answer we now know. We have a GPS network. We have instruments that are measuring tiny movements in the Earth's crust. And we have a very firm uh, handle on this story. What's the answer? Well, it's not really squeezing from the northeast and the southwest. It's really squeezing from the southwest against a stable northern Washington. In other words, instead of a vice where we're clamping down on both jaws of the vice at the same time, instead, we're going to squeeze in a vice by just holding one of the jaws stationary. That's northern Washington. And we're going to continue to crank down on the other jaw. We're still going to compress, but it's just one of the jaws that's working. Why is that? Why is the crust of southern Washington, basically southwestern Washington, why is that stuff moving to the northeast so effectively? and squeezing down in this earthquake alley, this compressional zone through central Washington, creating the Seattle Fault, the Tacoma Fault, and all the rest. The answer we now know is a clockwise rotation of the Pacific Northwest crust, poorly understood until we got these GPS instruments installed in the ground all across the Pacific Northwest. We can now measure this happening. Let's try it geographically. Northern California is moving northwest. Western Oregon is moving north. And southwestern Washington is moving northeast. You might have to draw that out. But if you draw those vectors out, it's altogether, it's a graceful, beautiful, continual, graceful, said that twice, rotation of the crust in a clockwise sense, Northern California, Western Oregon, Western Washington, against a stable, stuck, stubborn buttress of Northern Washington and British Columbia. The result is ongoing crustal compression and ongoing shallow crustal earthquakes, producing earthquakes every few thousand years on a particular fault. Is this starting to work for you? Tremendous growth in our understanding in the last 30 years. What does the future look like? Hopefully, we can figure this all out before the next great earthquake. I shouldn't say that. Before the next big earthquake on one of these reverse faults, these shallow crustal faults. But the pessimistic part of me says, we're not going to get that money or that attention 
until there's a tragedy. That's how this usually works. The coffers are closed until there's a problem, until there's a bad event. And then, oh, we're not going to let this happen again. We just lost thousands of people. Uh, let's get some research on this. It doesn't seem to work the other way around. We cannot effectively communicate the risk uh, before something happens. In a weird way, that's what I'm trying to do with these episodes, but I'm certainly not uh, well-connected enough to make the point uh, to people who are in charge of the purse strings. But it would be nice to have more people trying to communicate science to a broad audience. But that's a whole other topic for another day, why that does not seem to be happening. And we are in a dark we're in dark days right now with scientific uh, uh, respect and understanding, but that's also maybe some s special soapbox uh, edition of this podcast series. Well, I think that's enough for today. Thank you for listening. That's the Seattle Fault representing shallow crustal earthquakes and the Nisqually earthquake of 2001 representing regular deep slab quakes here in the Pacific Northwest. Dear viewer, I appreciate you. I love you for listening to this program. We'll talk to you next time.